Guys, have you experienced that moment after a big argument with your wife where it's just really awkward and can last up to days, some marriages, years? That is the notorious argument hangover. Today we dive into how to make the argument hangover shorter in duration, how to fight fair with your wife, and why conflict resolution is a desperately needed art form in marriages today. It's not the critic who counts, not the man who points out how the strong man stumbles or where the doer of deeds could have done them better. The credit belongs to the man who was actually in the arena, whose face is marked by dust and sweat and blood. Welcome to the Men in the Arena podcast, sponsored by Mountain Tough Fitness Lab, where we interview specialists in the realm of manhood. Each of our guests is an expert in their chosen field or cause as it relates to men. Our conviction is to call you into the arena of manhood, call you out of the faceless, nameless bleachers, and call you up to be the best version of you. Because when a man gets it, everyone wins. Enjoy today's episode. In 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 27, Paul says, I discipline my body and make it my slave. You know, we often forget, guys, that God has called us to steward the bodies he gave us so that we'll be ready, healthy, and spiritually dangerous to fight the good fight, whether it's working at your job, serving your God, protecting your bride, or being a great dad to your kids. That's why we're so excited to partner with Mountain Tough Fitness Lab. Mountain Tough Fitness Lab is run by Christian men who are passionate about training you to be your best version and to stay dangerous and ready for God. Join me on my journey by going to mountaintough.com, that's M-T-N-T-O-U-G-H, and getting your free six-week trial when you type in the code ARENA30. You won't be disappointed. Stay dangerous. What type of dad are you? Guys, in my 35 years of ministry, I've noticed that guys basically fall into two categories. And in those categories, there are four types of dad or four phases that you pass through as a dad. We just dropped an amazing quiz to help you discover what type of dad you are. Find out what type of father you are and get our custom resources fit to meet the needs and the questions you are asking. Head on over to menarena.org. Join 20,000 men from around the world and find out the type of dad you are. Men in the Arena Army, we salute you. Hey guys, thanks for listening to this episode of the Men in the Arena podcast. I'm Jim Ramos, your guide and host of today's number one podcast on Spotify for Christian men, leading you to your best version in that stress bubble of life and beyond. Welcome to today's show. But before we get into the interview, I want to dive into one of our hero stories. This is hero story number 134 from Eddie. He emailed us in. Now remember guys, a hero story is a story that either you have seen someone transformed by the ministries of Men in the Arena or you yourself have been transformed by something you've heard or said or you experienced in a small group. So Eddie wrote us a very long email explaining how his marriage was was near divorce about year eight, and then later on about year 16 because of addictions he'd been battling. Concluding his email, he wrote this, Men in the Arena has had an immeasurable impact on my life. I am proud to say that last week, my wife and I celebrated 24 years of marriage together. He said, I'm getting choked up saying those words because it doesn't come with a lot of sacrifice, a lot of hurt, but more importantly, a lot of grace and work. Today, our marriage is the best it's ever been in our lives. And he continues, he says, no exaggeration, 
the best. I wanted to share that with you because you've had a massive impact on us. I'm a better man. I'm a better husband. I'm a better father. I'm a better friend. I'm a better leader today because of the ministries of men in the arena. Thank you. That is awesome. Hey, man, hit us up, Eddie. We want to give you some swag. Just say thank you. Men, continue to send those hero stories our way. Wives, continue to send those hero stories our way as we collect one hero story for every day of the week this year. Hey, guys, make sure you stay tuned to the end of this episode as we unpack one of our 101 man laws found in my book that's simply titled Man Laws. Guys, I'm excited for today's guest. Our guest today is Aaron Freeman. Aaron has been married to his beautiful wife, Jocelyn, for eight years. He and Jocelyn are the founding founders of Empowered Couples University, providing relatable and actionable tools and skills for couples. They have reached over 1 million people around the world with their message and host one of the top 20 relationship podcasts on iTunes. Their vision is to lower the divorce rate in their lifetime. And I say amen to that. They are also the authors of the best-selling book, The Argument Hangover. Love that title. It is our topic for today. Hey, Heron, thanks for coming on the show, man. It's it's great to have you on. I, I didn't tell you this offline, but I accidentally ordered two of your books. <laughs> so I read one and gave one away already. So I'm already uh, one of your fans, apparently. <laughs> Love that. Some people buy two and then they try to put it on the nightstand for their partner. But, you know. Yeah, that's a great way to start conflict. So anyway, though, hey, hey, speaking of that, I see over your right shoulder, you've got your book, The Argument Hangover, which is our subject today. Tell us about the book, why you wrote it. Just give us a little insight. Hmm. Argument hangover. You know, we think that really describes something, right? It's you get in conflict with your partner. And as we go into this, look like that's going to happen. You don't want to avoid that. You don't want to resist that. But when you do have steps to repair, you can also approach challenges a lot differently. Because a lot of our experience now is when we get into conflict, you know, it escalates. But it's that it's the period of time from however you end that argument, and then you're disconnected, right? And for some couples that we coach, that can be that you never actually repair that. So it just kind of peters off, but couples can be disconnected for a couple of days. And it's when you feel not only disconnected, but your energy can be low, you can be like avoiding each other. And like that feeling we thought was a lot like having a hangover. And you just your energy is is down. And we thought, well, we know that conflict and having conflict is going to happen, but what we can do is we can shorten that argument hangover and we can keep things from being escalated. And then you can actually learn from conflict. So we can actually turn something that is perceived as a negative into a real positive. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. So on page four, you define the argument hangover as this period of time between having the argument with your partner and fully resolving it. But I just had a thought as you were speaking, I'm going to talk through a couple uh, wrong phrases that couples use or phrases that aren't grounded in truth. And I don't think I heard this one, but I, I, as you were speaking, I thought, you know, there's a phrase out there that couples, I'll, I'll hear couples say, well, time heals all wounds. Well, according to your book, you would say that's not true, mm. right? No, definitely not. I mean, if you're not addressing it, then my wife's analogy is it's like if you were cleaning up your house, but rather than actually sweep it up and put it in the trash or, you know, get it get it out of your house, you're just putting it under the rug. And so maybe you don't notice like a little bit of dust that you put under there, but you are building that into a tripping hazard. And it's a very, very real thing if, if you are thinking that time is going to be what heals it, well, you're just 
building up an emotional backpack is another analogy. It feels like it can be resentment. Your needs aren't getting met. You feel like your partner doesn't care about you as much. They're not listening to you. You don't feel understood. It's like time is not repairing that. You, you need a process. You need to actually have repair conversations. Well, you know, so you talk about the backpack. So there is a compounding effect when we refuse to deal with the argument hangover. Is that what you're saying? Oh, yeah, definitely. When you're not dealing with repairing the source of the conflict, taking responsibility for the impact that your actions had, that's a place we can go because that's a little bit more difficult for, I think, men to kind of accept. We get into this place where, well, that's not my intention or, you know, you shouldn't have taken it that way. We do have to get to this place where we just, hey, I'm willing to hear out the role that I played and the impact that it had on you, whether I was intending that or not. And I can validate that's your experience and just look for where I can take ownership. I can own up. And then as we move through the process, we can also make some clear agreements so that in the future, that impact doesn't continue to happen. And that's when you can really bring repair. And now I know I'm jumping like pretty far ahead, but forgiveness is such an interesting thing, right? It's like we all... We, our goal is to be like Jesus, of course, and he forgives seven times seven, which we know is just basically all the time. But as we work towards that, I think in a very real sense, forgiveness comes from, I feel I can express the impact that my partner's actions had on me or caused the conflict if they take ownership and take responsibility. But if it's something that's been recurring for me to really feel safe to forgive because some people hold back. I, I can't forgive because if I open myself up that way and it happens again, it's going to crush me. So forgiveness is also this part where my partner makes a promise or an agreement with me and they show consistency in keeping that. Now I can build my trust back up that the change is going to happen. Now I can kind of say, hey, I forgive and I let go of the past because I've also had the impact acknowledged. And I also see that there was change and my partner is following through. And that's that's a big one for men, this idea of following through, uh, not just doing what we say, but acting out, right, and being one of integrity to our word. You know what? You're So this is really interesting, Aaron. So you've been married eight years. I've been married 31 years. And it's really interesting. We saw a lot of couples divorcing in the years one through 10, mm -hmm. but we're at 31 years now and you just cannot, it's like an epidemic of divorce with these three decade long marriages. And it really has all come down to one thing. I know I'm narrowing it down, but it really, these marriages that are ending come down to harbored bitterness and resentment that is compounded over time because of unresolved conflict. And a lot of these marriages you said things like, we never fight. You know, we always get along. And I'm just going, I go, that just can't be true. You know what I'm saying? So so you made a comment about men. I want to just ask you about it. You said, you know, to own the impact. I'm writing all this on a piece of paper here. <laughs> to own the impact, to take ownership, to follow through. So what I'm hearing you say is those things are not our, our, our ownership, taking responsibility is not the same as saying, I'm sorry, honey. <laughs> that's, that's exactly it. <laughs> you know, saying I'm sorry and the apology, it has its place. So for anyone that reads the book, there's, there's five steps for, there's five R's, right? And the apology, 
can have a positive impact in step four. But so often we just, I say we like us men, you know, it happens both sides, but, but, you know, men will just say like, I'm sorry, right out of the gate. And there's really, there's two things there, right? One is our partners have a sense that we're just trying to move on from the conversation and not acknowledge the impact. So it's like, Hey, I'm sorry. Like, Hey, let's move on from this conversation. So that's not addressing the impact. That's not actually repairing. And the other side of it is it could be genuine, but the piece that's missing is what I assume I should be sorry for might be a lot different than like what you were actually impacted by. Oh, oh, yeah. I can give you a great example. I could say, hey, I'm really sorry. And I think that I'm apologizing for my tone and that I got escalated. However, if what my wife Jocelyn was most impacted by was how I just left the room and she felt abandoned and alone. Well, I'm not addressing, hey, I'm sorry. Well, sorry for what? Like we have to be able to get into dialogue and communicate about what were you actually impacted by? I take responsibility for that. Now it's clear what I can actually be apologetic for. So, yeah, that that is really good. And there, so there's a there's a there's a lingering effect if I'm not willing to own up to the thing that I actually that triggered her that 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 led her down that path. But there's also um, there's there's this this thing if I don't deal with it, it doesn't go away. It's like a backpack. In your book, you said there is a subtle lingering argument hangover for two to three years. And I would argue maybe 20 years, you know, that some of these things are so, so why, why is the argument hangover so detrimental over the course of a marriage? Because you're not addressing the root cause. You know, I talk a lot about like the washing machine or the dishwasher and it's, we're usually not upset by the topic or the subject. We're impacted by what that means to us. So I won't go into the long story, but Jocelyn and I got into a back and forth a few years ago about this dishwasher and it had broke. And then I decided to fix it myself and it worked, right? Like it was fine. There was no leaks. And then the way she was putting dishes in there, I, I kept on commenting on. So it turned into a little conflict. She's like, why are you always upset about these dishes? And I realized I had to even reflect for myself. I'm not actually upset by how you're putting these dishes in there, though. I'm saying that it's that, you know what? I spent six, seven hours of my day besides going to Home Depot and all the work that I put into that. It feels like you're not respecting the time I put in for, into that. Now, in a very real sense, I didn't even know that that was the source of my initial conflict. Like I'm just talking about can't you do the thing that I'm telling you to do is the heavy dish, the heavy pots go on the bottom. Why do you keep putting those on the top? But really for me, it was that respect. It was that appreciation. And that's the piece that never gets addressed if we're just trying to move on or if we're in these long argument hangovers because we're not getting to those root causes. We're not understanding the impact. And when I don't understand the root cause, how can I promise a change in my behavior? So the behaviors just keep going on and on for years and years. Yeah, I'm just going to say this. You guys listening, I'm telling you, you need to tune into this. This is going to save your marriage today. This is some big time stuff. So, so I want to dive into some. There. So, when we were first married, my wife and I, we we joke we have a high maintenance marriage. 
You know, and after 31 years, we realized, wow, all good marriages are pretty high maintenance. But we heard phrases in our marriage from other couples that are now divorced that we thought, wow, we wish they were like them. Tell me the lie. Tell me the lie behind this statement. We never fight. Hmm. What's the lie behind that statement? When couples say, oh, we never fight. We never have conflict. We would say, are you even addressing any of the unmet needs that are that are there like it's not a question of if they're there or not it's like are you even having any real conversations now i don't want a blanket statement that couples can be in a season in which yeah they're not fighting but likely you're in that season because you've repaired all that there is to be repaired you've you've made the agreements you're actually following through and so now you're really in a healthy place in which yeah we're not fighting but most people mean some version of we never have any fights, meaning we're not really having the hard conversations. I'm not asking my partner, hey, let's sit down and have an honest discussion about where's your level of satisfaction in the major areas of our relationship? And is there a place that I can do better? It's like we're, we're not willing to confront the places that we might not be meeting the, a certain standard or meeting the needs of our partner. So yeah, you can act like things are fine, but until you're actually addressing these things, do you get to a place where, yeah, we're not we're not fighting, but we've done the work. Yeah, you know, you brought up a point just kind of as a parenthetical statement. It is so important for us as men to ask our wives how she ranks the marriage. Mm-hmm. My wife always, listen, man, always ranks it lower than me. So knowing that my wife will always rank it lower than me, because women are basically, I think it was Gary Smalley years ago that said women are like the thermometer and guys are like the thermostat. So I always go to my wife regularly, like, Hey baby, how's the temperature? So do you want to speak to us about this, uh, this conversation, this honest conversation about ranking your marriage? Yeah, there's, and I I just read his book, uh, recently again, the DNA of relationships, funny enough. And there's a couple of ways to look at it. We do have a family meeting guide actually. So if if anyone would like to get it, they can go to meetthefreemans.com slash links. But there's a family meeting guide, and and one of the things to do, there's a weekly basis, a quarterly basis, and a yearly basis. And one of those check-ins is, hey, there are 10 areas, major areas of our relationship, right? From communication, conflict resolution, intimacy, leisure, family and friends, parenting. So you really want to look at that and, and be honest. Hey, where would you rank your satisfaction in each of these areas from, say, 1 to 10? And it's just, you want to be just objective about it, right? If I am willing to ask that question, I also have to be willing to hear the honest answer. And so it's not me getting upset that if I thought our communication was at a nine and Jocelyn felt like it was at a four, I need to know that, right? Because it's it's like if we were building a house and I don't check the foundation and I'm like, it's all good. Like, let's just build. I'm going to have problems later. So it's just the way that it is. I could be at a nine. My partner might be at a four, but I need to check that foundation because if a crack is there, a crack is there. Even if I choose to ignore it, doesn't mean that it's not there. Now that's a really good statement. How about how about um, how about this advice? Sometimes we get <clears throat> we see uh, parents give their kids. You mentioned this in your book. What's what's the lie in this one, honey? You need to pick your battles. Mm. I, there is some truth to that. So I won't say that it's all a lie, 
I think there's a certain level of when we've communicated about things enough, if we've really addressed the hurts, if we've addressed what's unrepaired, if we've made agreements and we're mostly keeping to those, and that's something else maybe we can address that's not quite in the book, but there's this idea, right? In our coaching, men have this statement where it's like, you know, stop questioning me on all of these things or stop micromanaging me from other side of the room. Or why do you have to remind me all the time? I might as well just complete the statement. You can ask for your partner to not inquire or to not have to remind you all the time. But the question to you is, are you following through at like 95% of the time on the things you said you would do? If you're at like 40%, you can't ask your partner to not remind you. They don't have any trust that you're going to, that you're following through on things. So you really have to check your own self. If you're going to ask for, Hey, I don't need all these reminders. And it's like, okay, well, you have you been following through? Have you been giving, let's say compliance yeses, or have you been actually committing to these things? Are you at a high level of follow through? If so, yeah, now I could take that into consideration. I do appreciate how much you've been following through. And okay, yeah, I can not remind you as often. Okay, I must have missed this in the book because you used a phrase I don't remember hearing. It's not in the book. <laughs> talk, talk to me about compliance yeses. Yeah, that's a great point. I know I, <laughs> I took us on a tangent. No, 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 no. That's good. I think because I do that all the time. Confession time. Yeah. Okay, honey, I'll take care of it. Okay. <laughs> so I also, you know, I heard this, I think, from Gary V recently. He was talking about how not every A in school is equal because it's about the effort that you really put in. Like, how much time did you put in on that? Or did you just, you know, re- regurgitate some stuff? And it's, and it's very similar. Not all of our yeses are equal. Because if I hear from my wife, Jocelyn, about here's a need she has, or here's a place that she has lower level of satisfaction, here's a request that she makes, and I just say yes. Well, I can say yes out of compliance because I'm just trying to get her off my back. I'm trying to get her just to move on past this conversation rather than me saying I take it all in and I'm saying yes because I'm actually committed to follow through on that. These are completely different yeses. The compliance yes leads to a slower degradation of trust because I'm likely not going to follow through on something I didn't actually mean. Yeah, that's I'm glad I asked. That's a great that's a great explanation. So we hear this all the time. I've said it jokingly. Talk to me about this phrase, happy wife, happy life. Hmm. <laughs> Again, there's parts of all these that are true. <laughs> no, I understand. I, I totally understand. Yeah. You know, for me, that whether you were to reverse that statement, even though it's not like a common one to say happy husband, happy life, it doesn't even rhyme, right? So, <laughs> but it's about you're not in a marriage to sacrifice or to suppress what you need. And there's a context of that phrase, happy wife, happy life. That is, you don't assert yourself. You don't share your own needs. You sacrifice what's important to you so that your partner can be happy. Well, 
your partner can be happy because you're meeting their needs, for example, but you could be completely unhappy. And ultimately, that's not going to lead to a happy life. If you sacrifice everything and your wife is technically happy, well, it's not leading to a happy life for you if you don't have the chance to be understood, to express, to have your needs met. And so it leads to an imbalance. And the thing other people don't think about, when our partner's needs are being met, we're following through, they feel loved, they naturally want to give that back to us. They want to know about how our life is going. That's that's very natural for, for women to be more concerned about connection, about nurturing, about relationships, about wanting to ser- you know, serve us in that way. And so if we're not expressing our needs, they don't get that opportunity. So how can they know? How can they know how to also give back to us that respect or that love that we're sharing them? So it doesn't allow for this kind of mutual growth where I add to your love account, you add to my love account. Now our life is happy because we're both fulfilled, we're both expressed, we're both connected. So, okay, talk to me, and this is in your book, and it actually was one of my questions, but you're leading into it. So talk to us about this love account. Hmm. How does this work in the context of a marriage? It's this measure of how loved and connected you feel. And you might think of it as a bank account. It's it's a good way to think of it. And the same is that you're going to have income going in, but you have expenses going out. So you don't just ever get to a place necessarily where you don't have to ever put anything back in. Maybe if you're super wealthy. But so in that regard, maybe it's a gas tank, right? It's like, I fill my gas tank up once. Are you going to get upset that you have to go back to the gas station sometime later? No, it's like, that's what you need. So in a relationship, you need to be making these deposits to this love account, to this feeling of being loved and connected with your partner. And why that is, is because we're also making withdrawals, whether we realize that or not. So if I make a little side comment, or I have a tone, or I don't, or I have an attitude, or I don't follow through on one of my commitments, it's going to be a little bit of a withdrawal from my partner's love account. Now, here's the thing. If if hers is high, because we've been very focused on keeping our love accounts high by making the right deposits, then when there is a withdrawal, like I forget to do something or I make a snappy remark, that's not going to feel that significant for her. It's like if we had a million dollars in the account and we made a $50 Amazon purchase, barely, don't even notice. It's going to show up at our door, but it's not going to even be noticed by the bank account. But I can make the same Amazon purchase. And if I only had $80, man, that's going to feel like we're struggling. So in a very real way, all of your conflicts or your withdrawals from each other are very, very relative to where your love account is at. When it's lower, your partner's going to feel that being more significant, more personal. So that's often why we get into this place like, how could you take it as that? It was so simple. It was so small. You're being reactive. You're being emotional. It's like, well, no, this is all very relative. If you've been making all withdraws and no deposits to your to your wife's love account for like a week, then yeah, the small little thing that you say, it might not have been a big deal two weeks ago, but you gotta you gotta notice where you're at. Yeah, you know, it's really you got me thinking about something. 
I wholeheartedly agree with the love account concept. I just completely agree. It seems to function on a subconscious level. Hmm. Like it's just happening. But what, ha- what where I see couples really get in trouble is when they f- they move into a conscience level, a conscious level, and they they become what I call ledger people, which is they start looking at well, you do this, I'm gonna do this, everything's gonna be reciprocated. What's the danger of moving from this subconscious love bank or love account to this uh, very focused uh, reciprocation expectation or this ledger thing? Do you know what I'm talking about here? Mm-hmm. Do, do you see this this ledger thing when couples get there? Talk to me about that. That's a good point that you bring up, and some people might describe it as like tit for tat yeah it's like you're you're keeping score you're keeping a tally it's not top of mind but like really if you're like a golfer right it's like you're keeping score and then you put it in your pocket you're like i'm not keeping score and then you get into this conflict and then you're like i've got this list (laughs) so so one of the things that it does though is it is an easy way to escalate conflict because you're not dealing with either the what the conflict is about you're not dealing with the root cause it's like boom all of a sudden you brought up your whole list and so now i mean how far back are you going like week month are you bringing up things from like two years ago it's like what else would you expect except for that conflict to escalate it's like we were just talking about who was going to pick up the kids or like a a hundred dollar purchase that you know you didn't talk through or whatever and like now you're talking about you're just like your mom or, you know, remember a year ago when you were talking to that one person, it's like, what are you talking yeah. about? Yeah, <laughs> no, this is, this is really good. So I'm going to go back to the beginning of the book. So are you telling people that they should fight or are you just expecting that they are fighting? Mm. Oh, and let me rephrase that. Is a fr- is a fight the same as an argument or a conflict? There's a lot going on there. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So we could probably make that more clear with the differentiation between a disagreement being that there's there's a difference of opinion. There's a difference in perspective. And we can get to the place where even we have this difference of opinion or perspective, and we might feel more strongly about that. So there can be tension. There can be emotion there. A conflict is going to be where we now escalate that to really being where we move from a, a conversation into a conflict where I've, I've done more damage than was necessary. You know, whether it was like an attitude or a tone or me withdrawing, me shutting down, me being defensive, me going on attack, that's where we get into uh, the conflict. And, and there's a whole conflict cycle. Or in the book, we talk about three parts to emotional triggers. Now we're now we're in that conflict because we've now caused a trigger to happen. Okay, so let's talk about triggers. So <clears throat> you in your book you mentioned three triggers and you want to go through those right now and you want to let's go through those three triggers. Uh, you talk about the event, uh, the emotion and the behavior. Uh, and then you said in your book you said on page 48 when some event in your relationship reminds you of that image or experience, it isn't just the image that comes back into your mind, but also the emotion that was linked to it, hence the term emotional trigger. Hmm. So being trigger, you talked about it's like that is literally poking the bear, right? Like <laughs> or that, you, t- or you or actually that deer, said that deer in the back. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> 
you literally in your book said it's being poked in the sensitive spot on page 47. So let's go back. Let's talk about being triggered when it comes to this conflict and the argument hangover. Mm. Yeah, it's great that you brought us back to this because it also speaks to the importance of repairing from things. Because when we don't, we're building up that emotional backpack. And what we're really doing is we're now setting ourselves up that in the future, we're just creating landmines. We're creating these potential triggering events because we're not repairing things. So then something happens and it can end up being pretty seemingly unrelated, like a tone of voice where I try to bring up a certain topic and all of a sudden it's our partner is is triggered or, or I'm triggered. And again, it's it's that the trigger is there because how our brain works is that memory is really linked to an emotion. And if you think about, if we were going to say, hey, describe the most like mundane, uneventful experience that you had is like, I don't really have access to that. Well, because our memory is triggered by emotion. Yes. Oh, that's a good point. Really good point. So when a trigger happens, it isn't even necessarily about the subject or the event. It's that that has now reminded us of a previous event, likely unrepaired. And now all of my past emotion is coming with me. And so as we know, it's you're not ever experiencing the past you're always experiencing it in the now. So we, in a very real way, we're experiencing the same emotion we had or very similar in the past. And we say like, oh, don't talk about the past. Like, why are you always going back in the past? It's like, well, no, that memory is bringing this emotion. And I'm actually reliving that emotion now. So it's in a very real way happening in the present. So the, but the whole sort of negative cycle about triggers, and one of the things to get, I think for all of us, we're going to get triggered. We're going to trigger our partner. We're going to get triggered. There's going to be conversations that we didn't think to repair. So unrelated things are going to bring up these emotions for us. But again, that could keep it as a disagreement. That could keep it as a conversation that has emotion with it. But the problem is the triggered behavior that's unconscious. Because now from that emotion, I now just react with, again, attack, defensiveness, criticism, withdraw, shutdown, belittling. And that is the main problem because that's what takes us off into a bigger conflict. So you talk about on page 68, you talk about, uh, you say what, the, you talk about a pattern interrupt. And then you say what this means is you have to put something in place that breaks the cycle and keeps you from automatically and by default going into your triggered behavior. So is is this pattern interrupt? Is this where the code word comes in? Uh, what 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 is what do you mean by pattern interrupt? When when I am triggered, give me an example of a pattern interrupt. Mm. And yeah, this is you know something that's been around whether in like NLP you know, neuro-linguistic programming. It's really that our brains are running this program, right? So it's if if I have this triggered emotion, which is triggering fear or abandonment in me, it's like the brain gets hijacked from a part called like the amygdala. 
And so we just run this survival program. So the survival program is that that's my reaction. So what I need to do is to be able to create a gap so that my brain thinks like, oh, wait, I experienced being abandoned. And where I would normally run the program, all of a sudden I have a space. So your brain thinks to itself, oh, this this must be different than when I normally just run the same program. And so you do get like a little bit of a gap there where you have the opportunity to insert something to where now your brain's like, oh, this must be a different circumstance than all those other ones. So to your point, it's there's various things and I'm not like the expert on NLP, for, for instance, but yeah, you could just come up with a code word or a co- code phrase. And sometimes we use one that's like totally unrelated so that you add a little bit of humor. So we've just said like blueberries or more realistically, you could say, hey, same team, same team. And so long as that can be a pattern interrupt to your brain to not just run the same program, that's ideally what you're looking to try to do. Okay, so you br- you bring up another point. So let's say I'm triggered. Let's say my wife says something and now she's triggered me. She can tell clearly by my body language and my emotion I'm triggered. Is she the one, we call it a safe word. Mm. Is she the one that brings the safe word or the code word to me or do I interrupt my own pattern? Or does that pattern interrupt come from her to me? Mm. Because she's already triggered me. So is, if she uses a code word, is that going to make it worse? Or how does that work for you guys? Mm. I see you have all the football helmets back there. So we. this is definitely where it's a team game. The first part is we want to be personally responsible for our own triggered behaviors. So whether it's just like ongoingly or, you know, the personal work that I'm doing, uh, there's also an opportunity here to have really good conversations with your partner to say, hey, this is going to be a safe place. This is a a conversation that we can really get better at. I want to be more connected. I want to work on our responses with each other. So, hey, let's sit down. What are some of the things that you notice are the biggest triggers for you? And you can just really start to get more of this self-awareness. And I know one of them for me was, you know, if there was any swear word used throughout, it like really would escalate me. And I'm like, this is not acceptable. So it would kind of escalate me. So I want to be aware of my own triggers so that I can, I can be more on top of when they show up and I want to be responsible for trying to interrupt them myself. And so, yeah, maybe I say that, that code word to myself, or maybe I say it out loud. If we have agreed to it and my partner can then say it in the moment, yeah, that would be a good use of it. Now, one thing I'll just mention on here, agreements, specifically for agreements in times of conflict. We could have this idea that we're going to use a word to remind each other. But if we don't have it solidified as I am completely on board with that, then in the moment when our partner says something like, hey, same team, or they try to get you to not escalate, you're going to feel like, don't tell me what to do. Don't, Don't control me. And so there's a small, slight difference. And that is that power of making an internal decision. If I've decided that for me, I am going to hold this standard of an agreement that when the code word is used, I'm going to link that to interrupting my pattern. 
Now, when I hear it, it is a reminder to something I've committed myself to and my brain and my body will feel a lot different. If I've only complied, like, hey, let's have this agreement where we can remind each other to not escalate. Okay, sure, sure. I will not have the same experience. I will feel like, hey, I'm the man, let's say, don't tell me what to do. You cause this. And I'm just going to get all defensive. So, so, so it's, so I've written numerous books and I've got one coming out in the fall <clears throat> and, and I get so attached to the book. I use phrases. I don't think them through. I'm like, Oh, I just assume every, so you, you made a phrase like that. You said your agreement. And I was like, ah, page 79 of your book. Hmm. You called it a, I'm just giving a point of clarification because our guys listening could be what agreement you called it a pre conflict agreement. So, and I think this is critical so talk to us about this sitting down with your wife. In fact, this guy's I'm just, guys listen. This is your action item. Your mm -hmm. action item this week is going to be to sit down with your wife and come up with a pre-conflict agreement. Because when I read that in your book, I thought, you know what? This is this is huge cuz we're going to I'm going to ask you about escalating next. But talk to us about the value of this pre-conflict agreement and when you give each other permission to use the safe or the code word or to uh, dialogue or whatever, or or you even talk about at one point uh, taking a time out mm -hmm. and stepping away from it. So talk to us about uh, this pre-conflict agreement planning and how this works out. Mm. Yeah, another great question. So the analogy here too for linking to sports Let's take boxing, for example. Even though you don't have to do this every time because it's been established as a guideline for how a boxer participates, you could think of it as before the boxing match itself, you are setting out guidelines. And it's like, well, you know, we're not going to, this isn't the WWE. We're not going to grab a chair. We're not going to, you know, can't, can't use weapons. There's going to be a bell. There's going to be a referee. So when there's a bell, you can't, can't swing. You can't throw a punch. And why? Those are in place so that you're not, so you can actually participate in the game. And so games require guidelines to participate in them. Otherwise, it becomes chaotic. It, be, it can become hurtful to another athlete. So in a very same, similar manner, we want to go into conflict knowing our triggers, knowing what's going to escalate, and we can create these guidelines ahead of time so that when we do get into the arena, <laughs> so when we get into the arena, then we know how to operate so that we can keep this in a, you could say healthy, yeah, you could, in a healthy way to where we can, we can have disagreement, we can present different sides, there can be emotion, but we're not going to end up doing damage to each other. And that's really ultimately how you can keep conflicts not only healthy, but they can become something that's clarifying. But without these guidelines, it gets so chaotic and you do damage, you never actually stay engaged long enough to get to the understanding and the clarifying, which is the actual benefit of conflict. You know what's interesting, Aaron, is you, you just triggered something <laughs> in me. Um, early on in our marriage, man, We it, it maybe year one or two, it was early, early on, we sat down, and I vaguely remember this. We said, hey, listen, we're, we're, no hitting below the belt. Mm. So we literally likened it to a boxing match. Yeah. And so below the belt was a personal attack on the person. 
you know, you're, you can't take care of me or you're this to attack. So attacking what the perceived problem or the violation, but not the person. And so we would have this phrase like, Hey, you just hit me below the belt. That's Mm. just not okay. You know what I mean? So, and I'm going to, the funny part about that is it's become so automatic in our marriage. I never even thought of it until you just brought that up. Mm. And that goes way back 30 years ago to, Hey, listen, we never are going to attack each other, you know, and that type. So that was really good, man. So, so one of the things that we've dealt with as a couple and still do deal with this is that this, this concept of escalation. So, you know, you talk about uh, earlier on, you talked about a disagreement and then that moves into a conflict. And I would say that a conflict kind of starting to go south is turns into a fight. Mm. So it seems like to me, there seems to be three phases here. Is this a code word, uh, something that you use to de-escalate, or how does a couple recognize in the moment? Okay, this is esca- emotionally escalating, so we need to take this down a notch and move from fight to conflict to a, a disagreement. Yeah, that's a good way to think of it. And again, there's a big difference between having your agreements be clear enough and decided on for myself that it can be this reminder. And I say clear enough, and this might not be answering your question directly, but I did want to make sure I added this in here. If it if it's too vague, then it's hard to implement in the moment. So so long as you know what hey, that's below the belt means specifically. And this isn't this isn't all the time, but if it is too vague, for example, and I'm not saying this about you guys, we just brought this example up. Yeah, if I say to Jocelyn, oh, that's below the belt. And she's like, what? Your tone. Like, that tone wasn't below the belt. And so it can become too subjective if it's not clear enough. So if I had the... Yeah, if I had the agreement of we're going to be kind and respectful. It's like, well, in honestly, if if my emotion is starting to get heightened and I I just feel disrespected. Number one is my partner probably wasn't intentionally disrespecting me. She's not malicious. But again, that's reminding me of something from the past that's unresolved. So now I just feel disrespected. And if I try to say, "Hey, you can't say that. That's disrespectful." And it's like, now we're just going to be in that tit for tat. Well, that's not disrespectful. Yes, it was. What was your tone? Well, I didn't have a tone. It's like, I'm not yelling. Yeah, you're yelling. So it's just, I'm not. Now I'm yelling. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not trying to have too many constraints here for people, but really you want guidelines that are just going to keep this fair, keep it healthy. And they do need to just be, hey, do we know what that means? So that when I say it, whether it's the code word or if I say that's below the belt, it still has to land like, oh, yeah, that's reminding me of something very clear and specific. And create a pattern interrupt. Yes, yes. Right? Yeah. I mean, that's the purpose, right? Exactly. The purpose isn't to go, hey, you suck, you hit below the belt. The purpose is to go, hey, we need to take mm-hmm. a little pattern interrupt time out here. We need to create an emotional gap. So, well, so this is good stuff, Aaron. So, you know, it's really interesting. So the argument hangover, you know, it implies there's a conflict, the book title implies there's a conflict, implies there's a period of time after the uh, conflict subsequent to the conflict where there's this thing happening. But, but what I really appreciate about your book, and I, I, I learned something 
uh, I learned a cool little phrase here. I'm never going to forget besides argument hangover. That was good. But the, the goal of a, of a, of a strong marriage is not, is not conflict resolution. It's intimacy. I mean, we're wanting to have an intimate relationship and, and, uh, I'm going to read, um, uh, something you said in here. I thought it was really good. You said true intimacy is in to me. You see that. Did you make that up or is that from your wife? That <laughs> no. was good right there. Well, I'd never heard of that before. Then you continue. You said intimacy is not just the physical intimacy you have with one another. It's also the emotional intimacy. The truth is the deeper your emotional connection is, the better your physical intimacy will be. And I agree 100%. You continue, but your emotional intimacy is only goes as far as you are willing to let your partner see into you. Mm. So what an interesting statement in a book about conflict resolution. Unpack that for me. Mm. I'm so glad you brought that up. I forgot. almost forgot that was in there. Uh, no, we didn't make up that phrase. Uh, I can't remember. It's you know sort of commonish in the relationship space. Gosh, I'd never heard of it before. You'd think after, yeah, that's my bad. <laughs> and when you see it like hyphenated out, you're like, oh my gosh, like it's almost like that's what that word. There was it is. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> this is such a great point, to even to kind of close out on, because if you if you honestly were to think about your life, and your individual life is actually not even the goal to be happy. You're actually, your life is meant to be fulfilled and meaningful. And it's just that if you're on that path, then things are going to come your way that you're afraid of. And as men, being in the arena is actually that we face those challenges and we grow into the people that God designed us to be. If we don't face challenges, then we're not actually doing what God put us here to do, and that's to become the, the, the better people that we came here to be. So if you bring that into your marriage, then if you're avoiding the challenges and you're not growing into the husband or the wife that you're meant to be, you, you have to look at those. And in another sense, if everything was just good, we know that it's not. Because I'm going to experience, you know, and maybe in some point in our lives, maybe we're actually moving to a place where our mindset is right, our spirituality is right, our emotions are right. And maybe 85% of the time, my internal experience is actually very joyful. I'm very loving. I'm very compassionate. I'm very on purpose. But there's always going to be for all of us a percent of our life that is not going as well, that I have stress, that I have fear, that I feel overwhelmed, that I suffer. So if we really want to know each other as partners fully, we also have to understand that other percent, which isn't a quote-unquote positive rainbows and butterflies sense. And that gets brought up in conflict. But if we keep on avoiding that, then we don't get to the actual intimacy. The deepest intimacy is understanding what we suffer or what our partner suffers or the places that they feel disappointed and stressed. And that's what we have to get to. Because who else is going to know that? You can have friends, you can have family, but you don't reveal all that stuff to them. Who you reveal that to is your partner. That's what it is to be known by somebody. And that's intimacy. And that's the opportunity that conflict, it's the opportunity that's in conflict. But if we're missing all these other things, it's very difficult to stay engaged, stay vulnerable, 
feel like I can share and be received and accepted in my deepest suffering. But if that happens, that level of being known, that's the kind of intimacy you want to get to. You know, that is a very powerful point. My wife and I joke that I'm not her best friend. I'm not her best friend. But then she'll say, but you're way more than that to Mm -hmm. me. Mm-hmm. I have a best friend, she'll say, but you're way more than that because you know me more than anyone knows ah. me. And so, and that has come from not only the sexual relationship, but really it's way deeper than that. It's saying everything about me, you're the only person that sees it. Mm-hmm. Everything. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a critical thing. And I think as you look, as you work with couples through Empowered Couples University, you know that's the goal, right? Of a of a successful and healthy marriage is being able to see deeply into one another and being open and vulnerable with each other. And conflict creates an opportunity to dive into that, right? Great way to say it. That's exactly right. So I'm going to close on one final quote. It's not yours, but I know you love it, and I'm just going to let you speak to this quote. And I bet you that you can tell me what the quote before I even ask what the quote is. I bet you can tell me what it is, but I'm not going to put you on the spot. It's by Dr. Wayne Dyer. When you squeeze an orange, an orange juice comes out because that's what's inside. When you are squeezed, what comes out is what's inside. Mm -hmm. So why is that such a powerful quote for a a marriage book? Mm. I'm glad you brought that up too. One of my my favorite authors. I forgot that was in there too. (laughs) It's because a lot of times we blame the actions of our partner. I feel angry because you did this. Well, no, whatever pressure was put on you, anger came out because that was what was in there. Just like the orange juice is in the orange. So it gives us opportunity to really work through, you again, like what God brought us here to work through. And, we, you know, there's maybe a longer conversation about lineage or like what gets that passed down to you from your family, whether it's through your DNA or through what you saw. But I believe all that was put into each of us for a particular reason. And we were meant to work through those things. So if Jocelyn does something and angers what comes out, I can't blame her for that. That was already in there, but that shows me that's what I'm here to work through. Yeah, that that is just, that's really good, man. I've really enjoyed our time together. There's a lot more in your book that we've unpacked. We've kind of <laughs> scratched the surface. So if these guys want to get a hold of your book or if they want to get in touch with you through Empowered Couples University, uh, what's the best way for us to connect with you? Oh, yeah. On Instagram, it's meet underscore the Freemans. Our website is meet the Freemans. You can find everything there. You could also go to the argumenthangover.com for the book specifically, but you can find the book at Meet the Freemans and the best place, meetthefreemans.com slash links gets you to all. We have all these guides on making up and moving forward on the repair process, on de-escalating, on a family meeting. And all those are just really great accessible you know, guides you can start with. And then we have, we have videos and courses all the way up to coaching and web classes. So it's all there. All right, Aaron. Hey, man, thanks so much for coming on the show. Sure appreciate our time together. Me too. And your your great investment in the lives of couples. Thank you so much. I appreciate it being here. Hey, man. All right. God bless, man. 
Hey guys, as you know, uh, our man laws are mostly supplied by you. Uh, and if we use your man law, we want to send you some swag to say thanks when you send us your physical address. And again, these man laws are found in my free resource on our website called Man Laws, 101 Ways to Get Your Man Card Revoked and Rules to Live By. This man law is man law number 33, comes in from Lewis Johnson. And he wrote this, no matter how bad you are bleeding, always say, eh, I've seen worse. <laughs> The life rule here, guys, is this. Remain calm in all situations. Men, make sure, if you haven't done so already, that you're following us on the podcast app. A lot of guys listen to our podcast without following, but the new follows helps us climb the chart. So it's this time to give back to our organization by hitting follow, and we really appreciate that. Until next time, feel the wet sand on the arena floor. Hear the deafening roar of the crowd. Taste the sweetness of victory. Smell the stench of battle. Get in the game. Get dirty. Grind it out. And be a man. <laughs>